We're in the book of Deuteronomy today, the book of Deuteronomy. Just so you know, this was furnished to me. So there's at least one person that wants y'all to be quiet for a moment. I'm glad this worked because my next event was to bring my 38. (laughs) Welcome to the service. It's good to see you in the Lord's house this morning. We come to the very last of our series that we've been involved with in the spring and summer of this year. And that is looking at the life of Moses. We've moved from the life of Moses from a little baby in the bulrushes all the way through to our sermon today, which is the legacy of Moses. So here now the word of the Lord from Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 32. That very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up this mountain of Abarim, Mount Nebo, which is in the land of Moab, opposite Jericho, and view the land of Canaan, which I'm given to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died at Mount Hor and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zin, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel, for you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there into the land which I'm giving to the people of Israel. And then the account of act, Moses actually doing this is found a couple of chapters over in chapter 34. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, Naphtali, the land of Ephraim, Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees as far as Zoar. And the Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Now Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all the servants and to all his land and for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. You may be seated.
This is the legacy of Moses. Moses' life falls into conveniently 40-year periods. First 40 years, he was in Egypt, trained and reared in the Egyptian culture. Then you know the story, he went into the wilderness. And there in the wilderness of Midian, he was for 40 years. There the Lord was training him the ways of the wilderness. And then God called him at the burning bush to go back to Egypt and to lead God's people out of Egyptian bondage through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And then we come to this moment here. It's interesting that the scripture says in the reading there, that very day, the Lord spoke to Moses, go up to this mountain, Mount Nebo, and die on the mountain. What an interesting thing. Moses was blessing the people. He was, he just got through preaching one of the longest sermons you'll read anywhere. And that is basically the book of, of Deuteronomy is <laughs> a, is a, an address to the people on the plains of Moab, which is the desert southeast of the Canaan and the land. And there's no more pleasure for a preacher than to be able to preach like that for 30 something chapters. It's a good day for Moses. Blessing the people. Canaan land was just in sight. He wasn't reduced in any of his capacity. His eye was not dim. His strength was not gone. He was still healthy. And the Lord said, on this very day, go up to the mountain and die. I'll let you know that's the way the Lord's timing works. We never know the moment when the Lord will say to us, it's time to come home. You just look at the graveyard, you'll see dates of death and dates of birth and you calculate ages and you'll see everything from infancy to people over 100 years old. You don't know the time when the Lord will call you home. But the Lord does. The Lord knows when it's time because he's given you a work to do a life to live. He has blessed you with life and he has a time. It is appointed unto man once to die. It's an appointment. And Moses had it. What's interesting to me is some of the negative things that are said here and yet, you know, talk about God calling Moses home at this particular time. God saying to Moses, you can see the promised land. He brought him up to a mountain and then to a peak on the mountain that he could see uh, literally pretty much across the whole topography. He could see all the way across to the Mediterranean. He could see the land and he spells out all the different parts of the land. The northern part of the land would be inhabited by Dan. The southern part of the land would be down in the, uh, in the deserts in the, in the south. And in the land of Judah uh, would be there in the middle in the hill country. And, he, and the Lord showed him the whole panoramic view but he said, you're not going in. He said, this is the land that I promised Abraham. God had promised it to Abraham, again to Isaac and Jacob. They're going to inherit the land. God's going to keep his promise. And Moses has been an important part, an strategic part of God bringing these people along. In fact, Moses found the people of Israel down in Egypt and they were just a discombobulated clan of people 
and families. And through the wilderness, he had brought them all the way through to now they were an organized, militarized, healthy, young. Everybody there was about age 40 or younger because the older generation had died in the wilderness. God has now a organized, a religious people, a people who have a sacrificial system, a people that have a governmental system, a people that have a welfare system, people that have an education system. That's what the book of, of uh, Leviticus and Numbers are all about, the Pentateuch. It tells us there in that story from Exodus to these passage here how God put all this stuff together. Incredible the things that Moses had done. In fact, some of these things that Moses had done would be kind of what you would think of as a, as a king would do a supreme organizer of a nation, putting together a nation and establishing all the things that have to be established with a nation. And kind of that's who Moses is in a way. Uh, the legacy of Moses is that he was proto, P-R-O-T-O. It means first in an order. It means before all. He was kind of the first one that did the things functionally that had to be done. He was a de facto king. He was a de facto priest, and he was a prophet. Prophet is the office that's usually designated to him, but these were the offices that God was going to expand and enlarge and continue and make more and more meaningful all throughout the rest of the Old Testament history. God was going to enhance the leadership office that Moses had, that is, of king. Moses had done a lot for the people already as king. He had saved them. An ancient king was someone who rescued his people. He delivered them in battle. He had redeemed them by the strong arm of the Lord. He was now their leader. The staff that God gave him to be the symbol of authority where the, the rod and the scepter are the symbols of kingly authority. God had given that to him and he was the leader of the people. He was the provider for the people. In the ancient world, the king was seen as the last resort of the one who provides everything the people need. He had provided food in the manna. He had provided, he had provided the quail, the meat. Uh, on several occasions, he had actually been the one that God used to provide the water in the desert. In fact, it was on one of those occasions he got in trouble because instead of just speaking to the rock, he smoked the rock. And he did two things when that happened. Scriptures tell us otherwise, and if you understand that right, he actually struck, smote Christ, because Christ was that rock. Christ was that fountain of living water. And in so doing also, Moses had failed to sanctify the Lord, make the Lord holy, and he had not kept the, the uh, image and the proper proclamation of God going. Can you imagine that? All, all that we've been through with Moses, how that even there he fell short. I'll make a second application of Moses' life. I don't care how wonderful a Christian you are, even if you're a Christian leader of some sort, you will fall so short of the glory of God. You will be so deficient in those gifts and talents that are necessary for serving the Lord to the optimum. And there's no reason for any servant of the Lord ever to be proud when you've done all that you can do, Jesus said, you still are an unworthy servant. So even Moses, even Moses needed a savior. Even Moses needs a king and a Lord. 
Moses, the Bible says in the New Testament, was a servant in the house of the Lord. Only a handful of people were called servants of God. Abraham was called a servant. David was called a servant of God. Israel was called a servant of God on one occasion. Even a foreign king was called a servant of the Lord. The servant of the Lord is a pretty restricted group of people, and that's who Moses had been. And he had been before the people as a king, not only as a savior and a leader and a provider, but also as a lawgiver. It is the king, the kingly office, that establishes the law. Now, when I say Moses did this and Moses did that, you've heard the story. The Lord used Moses to provide those things. It is the Lord who ultimately provided that. And if I'll apply this message again, I'll tell you that's what happens. Everything comes from the Lord. doesn't matter how it's mediated to us. Its source is the Lord himself. In all of his riches in glory is what he gives his people. And he uses mediators. And that's really the primary office to, to describe what Moses did for God's people. And for the Lord is he was a mediator. He was the man in between. Here was God up here, transcendent, ineffable in his name, beyond knowing in so many ways. No one had ever seen God. And God raised up Moses to be that person in the middle. The Bible says that he saw God face to face. In another case, said, Jesus said, nobody can see my face. John said, nobody can see the Lord and live. So it's, a, it's a, a, a way of expressing that he had that firsthand auditory vision of God. The Lord made himself known unmistakably and spoke to Moses. In other words, Moses got things firsthand. We looked a few weeks ago where it says, Behold, I have put my words in thy mouth. And so Moses was the go-between. He was the mediator between God and man. And in this mediatorial work, he occupied in a de facto manner these three classic biblical offices. We've mentioned king. Let's mention a little bit of what he did by way of prophet, which we've already mentioned. He was the spokesman for God. One of the things the prophets of Israel would be uh, doing for God is they would speak for God. How many times in the Old Testament, especially in the writing prophets, do we hear the term, thus saith the Lord? Well, it's the Lord speaking through the mouth of the prophet. And that's what Moses had done. Moses not only occupied the office of a prophet and did the things that a prophet did, but it is Moses that spelled out for us in the Pentateuch itself the way we can tell and discern a false prophet from a true prophet. And Moses laid out those particular uh, uh, criteria points that we would know how to discern, and it was mainly a prophet's prophecies come to pass. They are fulfilled, the true prophet. There's a sense in which you kind of know after the fact. But most importantly, it was Moses that, that wrote down the things of God. The prophets were literate. In fact, if you read the writing prophets of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, if you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Amos and Joel and all the rest of them, you'll find they're highly literary. In fact, it's written in a poetical form, most of their books. It's not just prose, it's poetry. It's highly, highly literate. And the prophets were the ones that had been trained in the words of God and the letters of God, and they're the ones that wrote the things. In fact, the prophets wrote the, the scriptures. Samuel wrote a lot of it. Moses himself wrote these first 
five books that we have. Joshua probably wrote some of it. Uh, Samuel wrote Judges in, in 1 Samuel. And so you could go through and God does it all the way down to Jeremiah, one of the last prophets of the kingdom. Jeremiah was spending his time with the books, with the scroll. He even had a full-time amanuensis, a secretary, Baruch, who spent his time working with Jeremiah to keep the words of the Lord inscripturated, writing down that which God had said orally has always been important to God. That's why we have the New Testament. The events of the New Testament took place without anybody writing down a word. But then the Lord made sure that everything that was important for us to know about those events that is the life and the ministry of Christ, the early apostles, and all of that came to us by specific individuals that were called to write it down. Inscripturation, that is something that is written down that you can see and understand and heed and live out in your life is a biblical concept. Yeah, I've got a couple of minutes. I'm going to take a detour. That's what's made America great. We, in our heritage, principally in America, going back to the Magna Carta and some, some pre precedent in the English-speaking world, we have what is known as inscripturated word. That is, people are willing to obey a document. They have the words of the Ten Commandments, the words of the Lord, the words of the apostles, the words of the gospels, the structures. God has trained a godly people to live according to a written word. An ungodly people will not live according to a written word. And when this country was founded as a country, we had what was called a constitution. And the only thing that enforces that constitution is the willingness of a godly people to submit themselves and subject themselves to a document, not to a king yielding a sword, not to a great army, not to threats, but to a document which is enforceable only by the sworn oath and the conscience of the subjects. And when a people become so ungodly that they cannot submit themselves first to the word of God, you'll never find them submitting themselves to the words of man in a constitution. And some people have observed the unconstitutionality of so many things that goes on in our life and in our culture and in our government today. How it is not according to those inscripturated words of the founding fathers. And you read the Federalists, you go through their Federalist 15 and, you know, all try to find what, what, what all these guys meant when they said what they meant. What do the amendments mean? First Amendment, Second Amendment, what do these amendments mean? Because we're trying to understand inscripturated word and a people that are not skilled at interpreting inscripturated word will not understand nor live according to a constitution at all. If you didn't get anything else, when you learn to read in elementary school, you know that was God's determinate plan for this country. When you learn to interpret written word and then live your life accordingly and match up to written word, you are living in a godly stream. But if you don't know how to read, if you don't know how to interpret and understand written word, 
then you're just liable to do anything with that old document. Probably the most important thing, critically, practically, that you'll do is just ignore it and go on and live according to some other word, some word that comes from some other source or some inclination of your own sinful heart. And when enough people start living like that, they've broken themselves away from the word of God, they're not going to in any way shackle themselves to a political document or a constitution or anything else. Eh, it took a minute longer than I thought, but does that make sense to anybody? A constitutional government will not work with an unbiblical people. So to the extent that you're ignorant of the Bible, you're incapable of understanding the concepts and the truths of the founding documents of our country. You think that's going to ever happen in America? That we're going to slip a little? Yeah, I think so. Where was I in the sermon? <clears throat> well, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about being a prophet. But the most important thing, not only does a, does a prophet speak the word of God, but he writes the word of God. He helps us discern the difference between true and false prophets. But there's something that is above it all. And that is that Moses is a, not just a proto-king or a proto-prophet, but he's also a proto-priest. Now, Aaron was the high priest. They were from the house of Levi. That was the priestly tribe. Moses had anointed and designated. The Lord had designated. We saw a couple of weeks ago how the Lord uh, gave uh, indication that Aaron was his uh, chosen one by the blossoming of the rod. And so we, we, we know that Aaron held that office formally, but it was Moses that set it all up. It was he that went to the mountain and found out how to construct the entire tabernacle and all of its furnishing and how the whole sacrificial system worked and how the annual calendar worked, all the feast days and the festivals, and all of that was structured and put together by the Lord as he gave it to Moses and he told Moses to do it exactly the way that God instructed him to do it on the mountain. And so he did that. And not only that, it was Moses the one who set up the entire priestly or religious system for Israel with all of its atonement rituals and all of its cleansing rituals and all of its anointing rituals. But Moses also was the one that had, had been to the Lord and had heard the Lord speak. But believe me, he also heard the people speak. We've seen that the last few weeks, haven't we? We've got Korah talking to us in rebellion. We've got Miriam and Aaron and many of the other people. Moses had all kinds of people uh, that, that would backtalk him. And so he had heard the, the complaining, the murmuring, the grumbling uh, the, in the wilderness and all that went on. And Moses had become the one, and we saw this time and again, had become the intercessor for the people. He prayed for the people. He was the one that would take their plea, take their heart, and take it before the Lord and plead their cause. Uh, even when the Lord was ready to do uh, a, 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 an act that would be very radical, Moses would plead with the Lord based upon the Lord's heart, his compassion, and all that. The Lord, of course, was compassionate. He would find a way to 
to mitigate the circumstances and not destroy Israel completely at that point and to move along. Moses interceded for the people. He also was the one that sanctified the people. That is that it was the setting aside according to the command of God through Moses that the holiness code came into being. How that all the people, first of all, the people themselves were set apart. That's what the word sanctified means. It means taken and set apart and then cleaned up and put into service. That's the, that's the whole range of sanctification. And that's what Moses, through the command of the Lord, had done to the people. Apparently, there had been some problems with that because the Lord said, you failed to make me holy before the people. I sure hate to see preachers get in trouble for what unsanctified congregations do. But that's what happened here. In this, in this instance. So it, it's interesting to see all of the ways in which Moses was a proto-king, he was a proto-prophet, and he was a proto-priest in making intercession, offering sacrifices, anointing, and doing all the things that, the, that and praying, interceding, all the things that a priest did. Why do I say he was a proto? It means before, but before what? before Christ. It is Moses who set out the template, who, who gave the broad contours of the mediatorial work of Christ. It is Christ who's now going to function in terms of a prophet. He's going to be that great prophet about whom Moses prophesied in Deuteronomy 18. Jesus is going to be that prophet. Jesus is going to save the people. If you knew Moses, you would know me, for he wrote of me. It's important that, that people know Moses because in order to know Moses, I mean, in order to know Christ, you have to know Moses. In fact, in the, in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 15, when they had what's called the first council of the church, the Jerusalem council, one of the things they had going for them when they made the decision that they made and were getting rather ready to send it out to all the churches through the various people that were there, Paul and, and, uh, and, and Barnabas and many others, one of the things that they said was that Moses was read in the synagogue in every city throughout that Roman Empire, that known world. In other words, Moses had gone before through the Jewish people as they had been scattered by various diaspora dispersions. They had been carried off into Babylon. They had been scattered into, into the world. They had been, been uh, in every uh, major province of the, of the empire. There were Jewish people, many of them refugees, and they had synagogues. And in those synagogues, they read Moses. And by reading and understanding Moses, then it was fertile ground and the groundwork had been laid and the contours had been put out to where you come straight in there and preach Christ. Because Christ was the fulfillment of the law. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures? The book of Leviticus where it describes the sin offering and the trespass offering and the guilt offering and the whole idea of substitution that the, the innocent could die for the guilty, the whole idea of the shedding of blood, the whole one concept after another that we understand the death of Christ, we understand because Moses heard the Lord and set up a sacrificial system that perfectly prophesied, 
foretold the meaning of the death of Christ. So the gospel writers didn't have to write all about substitution and forgiveness and the life of the flesh being in the blood. And, and when I see the blood, I will pass all. That had all been inscripturated in Moses. And Jesus said, he, Moses, wrote of me. It's interesting there on the Emmaus Road after the resurrection when Jesus was walking with the two disciples along the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize him. And what he began to do was he opened the scriptures and beginning at Moses and the prophets, he opened their eyes to understand the scriptures. And then that evening he did the same thing with the disciples in, in the, the room there in Jerusalem where they had gathered. Beginning with Moses and the prophets, he enabled them to interpret and to understand the scriptures. We understand Christ because Moses had taught us. That's what the word Torah means. The Torah is the teaching. He had taught us Christ. And so as I wrap it up here, let me just let you vision this little brief scenario. The Lord told Moses to go up on the mountain and die. From all eternity past, that's God's plan with Jesus Christ. He told Jesus Christ to go upon the mountain and die. Moses goes to Pisgah. Christ goes to Calvary. And on Mount Calvary, Jesus hung there between heaven and earth, a mediator between God and man, and pour, bore the sins of his people in his own body on the tree that we may live eternally. God took Moses and buried him there in the valley in Moab. Israel's experience in Moab had been kind of miserable, by the way. You remember Balaam and the talking donkey and all that stuff? That took place there in Moab not too long before this event. But he buried him there. Nobody knows where he's buried. Jesus was buried but I'm here to report to you that Jesus did not buy a burial plot. He knew he wouldn't need it. He didn't even take out a short-term lease on one because he knew he wouldn't need it but for a couple of nights. And so it was perfect that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. And before it was over, the tomb was empty as an open testimony to a living Christ. It is not Moses to whom I call you today to faith and repentance. Although Moses was wonderful, he served the Lord in the Lord's house faithfully, the Bible said, in the book of Hebrews, twice. But Jesus came and served God with an eternal sacrifice. And he is a priest that lives forever. Christ is a prophet that is the pure truth of God's word and he is a king the king of the kings and the lord of the lords Christ is what Moses was talking about the legacy of Moses it's Christ it's Jesus Christ